You push my, ah, oh, there it is. There, you're tricksy. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up to 1 Samuel. And we're going to continue to study the life of a man after God's own heart. You remember, as we've been going through the, the life of David, we find him, oh, a few chapters back, meeting the, the prophet, the prophet of Israel. His name was Samuel. And Samuel he came down and he, he anointed him. He touched him. Man, I'm loud. I'll fix it. I'll just put it further away. Okay. Sorry. Anyways. He anointed him king. Now we got from that point to Goliath. A lot of time has passed. And all that time that passed, David was still just taking care of the sheep. And when we see David taking care of the sheep, and and what what we're going to discover, one of the first things we're going to see in a man or woman after God's own heart is this concept. He did not promote himself. He was anointed king. The prophet said he's going to be the guy. The prophet anointed him with oil. The Holy Spirit was upon him. He was empowered for service. And he waited for God to make him king. And that's going to be a long wait. It's going to be a long wait for David. And he's going to go through a lot of hard things in his life. And when we look at that, my hope is it gives us encouragement. Because his life wasn't just easy. It all didn't just fall into place and... He was great, and man after God's own heart, no problems, no issues. That's not what we see. What we see is a regular guy with regular problems, a regular sinner. The one thing that sets David apart that you want to continue to kind of wrap your mind around and apprehend is this concept that God had first place in his life. Doesn't mean he never made mistakes, but when he did, he brought them before the Lord. His relationship with God was the, if not the most important, one of the most important things that he's going to deal with and, and, uh, and be a part of his entire life. So we pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter, 20, chapter 21. David has now, as he was serving King Saul, the people, remember, began to sing a song. Right? Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And Saul begins to get jealous of David. And Saul, because his heart was black because his heart was evil because his outlook was like that if if the roles had been switched and saul was the anointed and david was king saul would have went to war to take the crown and because that's the kind of guy he was that's what he expected out of david three times he tried to pin david to a wall with a spear but what do we see from the man after god's own heart he never pulled the spear out of the wall and threw it back Keep in mind the song they sang was with good reason. David was a warrior. He knew how to use a spear. He knew what to do with it. Saul was an old fella. David was in his prime. There was no problem where David put that spear where it needed to go. But he never took it. He never was, fell into that trap of, of self-promotion. But what we're going to see, one of the traps that he fell in and one of the traps that we can fall in is self-preservation. It's one thing to not promote yourself. It's another thing to start to worry so much about your situation that you try to take care of yourself. But you see, one is just one step from the other. If, if we won't promote ourselves, we have to learn to allow God to be the one who preserves us. 
that the Lord's the one who saves us. Not our schemes, not our plans. Well, that's where we find him in chapter 21. David running from Saul. It says, Now David came to Nob, to, a, to a, Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David. And he said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? Now people were used to seeing David, but when David came, he had a whole army with him. He was, a, he was the man. He's like the commander-in-chief. He's the guy who took the army out. Remember, for, for several years, maybe as many as ten, Saul sent David out in battles trying to kill him in war. And he kept winning. He just kept winning. And the fame of Israel would spread. So when he comes up to Ahimelech, and Ahimelech is one of the sons of Eli. If you remember at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, we were introduced to Eli. Okay. Oh, Lord, have mercy. He does, don't he? It's good news. It's good news for us. Okay. So he comes to Nob, Ahimelech, one of the sons of Eli. Eli, who had raised Samuel, and his sons had lost the ark, God brought a judgment through Samuel, and he said, listen... I'm going to remove your family from the high priest, and he's going to ultimately move in a family called Zadok. And Zadok is going to become the line of the high priest. And Ahimelech, one of the sons of Eli, sees David coming, the big hero. He knows David's anointed by God, and he's a little bit afraid. Last time they saw David all by himself, he was whooping a giant, remember? So he comes up, and Ahimelech's a little worried. What's going on? What's happening? Why are you by yourself? And David... Let's the fear of Saul and the fear of his situation cloud his better judgment, and he lies. And sometimes we think, well, that's okay. I mean, everybody's after him, right? Listen, the lie David's about to tell is going to kill Ahimelech, his wife, their children, and every man, woman, and child in the city of Nob. Sometimes we think lies, no big deal, it's my only choice, my only option. Sometimes our, our vision is clouded by self-preservation, right? If I tell this guy the truth, then I, I, you know, he's going to kill me. I'm going to be taken. And whenever we become afraid in our future, or in the present, we always do the same thing. We remove the presence of God out of the situation. And we assume that God can't do what he needs to do in our life. So he's going to lie. He's going to tell him a story. He says to him, so David said to Ahimelech, the priest, 
The king has ordered me on some business. So he said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I am sending you, or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men, that would be the guys that would be with him, to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. Well, David, literally, as we take a look in the, in the language, in the context of what's written, he's literally starving to death. He needs food. So he comes to the priest in Nob, and he's come to get bread. Now, Jesus, we're going to see, uses this story in his own ministry. Well, let's see what happens. He asks him for some loaves. And so the priest answered David and said, Well, there's no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. This holy bread is what's called the showbread, or the bread of his presence. Every Sabbath day, 12 loaves will be baked and placed into the tabernacle representing the bread representing one of the each tribes being in the presence of god god being their sustenance their sustainer the one who preserves them the one who takes care of them the whole picture is that picture of god giving the nation bread while they were in the wilderness and here david comes to this place and he is he is literally so afraid of what's going on in his life we're going to read about it in the psalms in a minute this period in david's life brought about more psalms than any of the others, you know, as he was spending his time in the caves and hiding from Saul. He's, he's so afraid that as he asks for bread and the priest says, all we really have is that showbread, the picture, the symbolism of that showbread is simply God's ability to preserve you even in circumstances that you can't understand. But David's blinded to that. He's blinded to what that is. All he can realize is I'm hungry. Saul's trying to kill me. I don't know how far behind me he is. I got to hurry up. I got to take care of this. So he asks the guy. Now the priest shows us something. The ceremonial law stated that that bread could only be eaten by the priest. But we're going to see the moral obligation for a man who is starving when he had 12 loaves of bread that only the priest could eat. The moral obligation outweighed the ceremonial law. And we know that because that's what Jesus taught us. You remember Jesus is walking through a field of wheat and, and his disciples reach over and they grab the wheat and they pull off some kernels off of the stalk and they, they shuck it in their hands and they pop the wheat in their mouth and out come the priests. Whoa, what are you doing? It was a Sabbath day. Don't you know it's unlawful to work? Well... That concept, unlawful to work, was a tradition of men, a ceremonial law. It was a ceremonial law. You can't, you can't rub the wheat in your hands. You can't pull it off the vine. That's not what God's Word said, but that's what they said. And Jesus said, have you not heard or have you not read that David ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat? But because he was hungry, the need of the moment superseded the ceremonial law. The here's bread, but only the priest can eat. I'm sorry, you have to starve to death. No, that wasn't God's intent. So the priest takes the bread and he gives it to David. He gives it to him and David goes. And later on, Jesus is going to use the same thing to rebuke the Pharisees who are trying to tell them they're not allowed to grab wheat and pop it in their mouth on the Sabbath day. Now, I'm sure the same Pharisees sat down for a nice leg of lamb, and they put that in their mouth. But 
somehow the sins or the issues on others always look worse, right? Than how they look on us. Well, this is David. He's calling out. He's crying out. He's starving. So David answered the priest and said in verse 5, Truly, women have been kept from us for three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, so the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the show bread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it had been taken away. So this is the old show bread. One of the things we recognize in this, it tells us two things. One, that the, the moral obligation outweighs the ceremonial law. But the second thing it tells us is that the people weren't tithing. Well, in Malachi, the Lord said, bring bread into the storehouse. So when there's a need, it can be fulfilled. But there was no bread in the house of God. So when people came, there was nothing that he could give David. The people weren't fulfilling it. It was a low time anyways, right? The time of Saul, the people clamoring for a king. The king's not such a good king. I'm sure there's some type of economic collapse going on because now they're paying taxes before they weren't. So they've got all these issues going on, all these problems. We see both of these things evidenced in the fact that there's no bread in God's house. But look at verse 7. In verse 7 it says, A certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day. And he had been detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. So this character we're introduced to, this Doeg, he's he's the villain in the story. We're going to see him in a moment. He sees David. He's detained uh, before the Lord. What that means is he needs to give a, a sacrifice, an offering of some sort. And he's waiting for the opportunity to do so. And as he waits, he sees David right in. So he's privy to all these things taking place. Well, David said to Ahimelech, Is there not on hand a spear or a sword? Now, doesn't this sound like a little bit different guy? Who, just a few chapters earlier, didn't want a spear or a sword to take on Goliath. He said to Goliath, You come against me with sword and spear, but I come against you in the spirit of the Lord. He's carrying a little sling with a little bitty rock guided by the hand of God. He knew he had the victory, but now being chased by Saul, his focus has turned from the power of God to preserve, to carry him through, to take care of him. It has turned from that to all he can see is the size of the problem. The army chasing him. Where am I going to hide? Where am I going to go? I lost my wife. I lost my house. I lost all my stuff. I don't have anything. And the problem got so big, he can't see the Lord anymore. So he lies to the priest, and then he asks for a weapon. Listen, the Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That means they're not of the flesh. But they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. The victory that we'll achieve in life over whatever thing, whether it's a victory over cancer or sickness or financial distress or whatever, it will never be brought about by carnal methods. It will never be because we had a better lawyer. It will never be because we were stronger or we were sneakier or we were anything else. Our victory is in the Lord, period. 
The same God who raises up kings and lifts up kingdoms is the God who brings about victory in your life over the circumstances you face or institutes into your life the trials which are going to build your faith. What did James say? Count it all joy when you are overcome with various trials. Isn't that what he said? Knowing that the trial, that trial is going to work in you perseverance. Perseverance, endurance, endurance, patience, patience, hope. And hope does not disappoint. For the love of God is poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. The idea is there's a purpose behind the trials that we face. And they come by the hand of God. Man, sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow. Isn't it? That ain't easy. Don't think it's easy. We've all been where David is right now, haven't we? If we're honest, where lying and scheming is the way we think we're going to get through something. Where we're looking for the weapons that are carnal. Weapons that we can wield by our hand. The weapons of our words. That, that someone attacks us. And what do we want to do? We want to respond. But Peter tells us that we should have the attitude of Christ. And the attitude of Christ was when he was reviled, he reviled not against them. You remember? When they spit in his face. When they pulled out his beard. When they called him all kind of names. When they despised him without cause. As a lamb led to the, to the shears, his silence, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't revile in return. It even goes so far as to give us the example of the archangel Michael. When he was in a battle or a dispute over the body of Moses. The Bible tells us Moses died and God buried him. That way nobody could ever go to the burial site of Moses. Nobody knows where it's at. But the Bible gives us a little insight into that. It says that Michael and Satan disputed over the body of Moses. Now if there's ever a time... When somebody should be able to rebuke someone else, it would be that battle between Michael and the devil. Well, you're going to see that battle one day. In Revelation chapter 12, the Bible tells us that Michael the archangel is going to finally grab Satan by the nap of the neck and kick his butt out of heaven. Currently, he's not dwelling in hell. The name Satan means accuser. The Bible says he's accusing the brethren day and night. So where is he accusing us? Before God. Job says, In the days when the sons of God would present themselves before the Lord, the devil walked up and the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? He has access still to heaven. That's why there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Because it's stained by the presence of Satan. But one day, the Bible tells us, Michael's going to throw him out. Which means, Michael has the ability to throw him out. But when Michael and Satan were disputing over the body of Moses, Michael did not raise a railing accusation against the devil, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Throughout scripture, we're given that same example. The Bible says, the Lord has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In my mind, there are three steps that every man or woman must take in order to forgive. In order to forgive. 
One of those steps is to relinquish the problem, the issue, to the hands of God. And say, not my will, yours be done. Sound familiar? You got to lay it down. You got to give it to the Lord. And then you have to anticipate that God's going to take care of it. And whatever God does is good enough. Because the person you free is yourself in that situation. You free yourself. Well, it's the same way here. We, we are not to raise a, 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 an accusation or a charge or to batter someone with our mouth. Ephesians says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. I don't know. Is there a different way to say that? It's, so it's pretty plain, right? No unwholesome word means it's actually defined for us in the next phrase. Only such word as will give grace to the hearer to edify, to build up. The words you use are to be words to build up, not tear down. Now, when I was a kid, if someone ran up to me and called me fat, I had to have a better comeback than that, right? Or I lost. So we spend a lot of our life learning how to put someone else down, how to bring that reviling. But that, you see, is a weapon that's carnal. And they'll never give us a victory, for the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. But here David, he's grabbing carnal weapons. He's telling lies. But the Bible still calls him what? Man after God's own heart, right? If man after God's own heart has nothing to do with us being perfect or good or, or righteous, it has everything to do with us always coming back to our centering and our centering being on the Lord. But David's always going to come back to him. He may trip and stumble and fall, but he will always go back to the Lord, repent and allow God to do that work he wants to do in his life. Well, he's asking for a sword, we see. So it says, For I have thought, or I have brought, neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. Well, he's still lying, right? It, it, it lies pretty stupid, isn't it? Here the mightiest man, the leader of the king's army, is sent on important secret business for the king, but he don't have a sword. And he don't have no army. But our lies always stink like that. They're not very good. I don't care how good you think it was. It's not so good. Well, <clears throat> the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Now they kept it in the holy place. The ephod was in the holy place. That was a, the place where the priest would go to discern the will of God. The Urim and the Thummim. Have you guys ever heard of that? The Urim and the Thummim were in the ephod. He would ask the Lord, and the Lord would give an answer through the Urim and the Thummim. Nobody knows how. I don't care what anybody tells you. I don't remember how many stories you've heard about it. Nobody knows. The Bible don't tell us. It just says the answer came through the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know. It means lights and perfection. That's all you know. So before you start thinking it's a black and a white stone or electronic display comes up and tells them, nobody knows. Nobody knows. But there it is by the ephod, the, the sword of Goliath, for whatever reason. So he says, if you will take that, take it. <clears throat> so 
uh, for there is no other except that one. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. So David takes a sword. Now he's stoked. He's got a sword. He's got bread. He lied, cheated, steal, did everything he could to carnally make those things happen. Now I want you to read this next verse with me. The next verse says, then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is a way of death. It means we think we know what we're doing, but we are knuckleheads and we really don't have any idea. Well, here's what this means. David, he lied to the priest. He took a carnal weapon. Whose was it again? Goliath. Anybody remember where Goliath was from? Gath. He takes a sword of Goliath to the capital city of the Philistines. Sounds like a great plan, right? Well, you know that little song that people were singing? Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. You know what people they're talking about he killed? The Philistines. Do you think the people in the capital city of the Philistines, the hometown of Goliath, don't know who David is? Seems like a pretty dumb place to go, don't it? But in his fear of Saul and his worry that God's not going to provide and that God's not watching and God doesn't know what's happening, he runs all the way to the encampment of the enemy. It should remind you of another fellow, big fisherman, always putting his foot in his mouth, warming his hands by the enemy's fire. You remember what happened to him then? A little girl comes up to him and says, Aren't you one of those guys that was with Jesus? And he folds, denies the Lord three times. Scripture tells us Jesus is being beaten within his vision. And Jesus turns the third time and he sees Peter face to face. That's pretty intense. Warming your hands by the enemy's fire. Well, here, here goes David, the best laid plans of man, right? Seems like a good idea. Saul hates me. I need to go someplace where Saul can't get me. I know. I'll go to Goliath's hometown. And before I go there, I'm going to strap his sword on. It probably says, Goliath, down the side. I mean, don't you think? The big old man with his big old sword. Here comes David trucking in with this big old sword. It says Goliath on the side. It seemed like a good plan to David at the time. But we're going to see it's really not such a good idea. Well, we continue. Scripture lays out for us. And the servants of Achish said to him, they said this to David. So David is in the city, and the servants say, Isn't this David, the king of the land? You see that phrase? Well, the the Jewish people didn't acknowledge David as their king, but the enemies, they knew who the king was. I don't care who was wearing the crown. When you're the guy going into battle, leading the men into battle, you are the leader. Those fellas aren't fighting for Saul. Those guys were fighting for David. And they knew it. The Philistines called him a king already. He'd never been crowned. But the Philistines know him. Isn't this the king of the land? And listen, listen to this. And did they not sing of him to one another in dances? So even the song even made it all the way to Gath. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So now he's in the capital of the Philistines in the town of Goliath and the people recognize him. 
shock. And they begin to think, isn't that David? What's he doing here? You know, they'd be a little bit freaked out for a while before the people got up the gumption to go after him, right? So the Bible tells us David's going to freak out again. Verse 12. Now, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So first he was very much afraid of Saul. That led him to lie, to take a weapon, and to make a dumb plan. You ever seen in your life when you're not in that right place with the Lord and, and things are a little rough, things get a little shaky, and so you, you start making a series of bad decisions? And a series of bad decisions eventually takes you to a place where you, you think, how in the world did I get here? Well, that David felt the same thing. Now he's afraid, he was afraid of Saul, now he's afraid of Achish. It's probably good for him to be afraid of Achish. I mean, what kind of props would you get as a Philistine if you're the guy who come and killed David? Well, that's a pretty good opportunity, isn't it? Philistines, I'm sure somebody's thinking, oh, man, let's go get him. Let's go get him. Well, David is afraid. So it says in verse 13, so he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down in his beard. He acted like he was insane. Now in those days, you know, someone who, who was moonstruck, a lunatic, someone who kind of lost it, you didn't want to stay around that person at all. You didn't kill him, didn't want to touch him, didn't want to be near him. So David, they actually grab him up and they're bringing him before the king. And as they're bringing him before the king, he just decides to act crazy. Starts spitting all over himself and slobbering and acting like an animal and clawing on the doors. And, and everybody just looks at him like, oh my gosh, he's gone crazy. He, he's lost his mind. So Achish said to his servants, look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? He's just a nutcase. Get him out of here. Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play, listen to this, to play the madman in my presence? So shall he come into my house? Get him out of here. So look at this decline of David. I mean, he, he's, he's practically the second guy in command to Saul. Saul throws him out, he runs, he loses his wife, he loses his house, he loses his position. He runs to the priesthood, he lies to them, he takes a sword, he goes, hides with the Philistines. And now the Philistines literally are saying, why have you brought this man to play the fool before me? That's, that's a pretty good decline, isn't it? From this mighty man of valor. Nobody's thinking mighty man of valor right now. There he is. Well, they put him out of the city. They put him out of the city and, and David does what David always does. He finds his way back into the will of God. He finds himself back into the place where he ought to be. Listen, chapter 22, we see a new beginning for David. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. 
And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Well, David went to the cave of Adullam. Now he's, he's gone down into an area around the Dead Sea and he's found himself a, a little valley, if you will, that he's going to spend much of his time living in the caves in that area in. That's where God wanted him. You know how many times God takes a leader and brings him to the backside of the desert for a period of training? I mean, just think about it. Think about Moses, right? 40 years raised by the best schools, 40 years on the backside of the desert, forgetting all the stuff that he learned in the, in the schools of man. And then 40 years leading God's people. Joseph. Joseph, anointed, gifted by God, but what's he going to spend? Well, he's going to spend 13 years in a prison, not including the time in slavery, as God prepares his heart to become the second in command. Time on the backside of the desert. David, called by God to be king, but before he's going to be king, he's going to spend time on the backside of the desert. Listen, when we look at the issues in our life that we're going through, if you feel like I'm spending time on the backside of the desert... That just shows the fingerprints of God all over your life. Because that's where God's people spend their time. On the backside of the desert. Being trained up. Being raised up. Being, being prepared. So David goes there. And what happens as soon as he gets to where he's supposed to be? God opens up a door and his family comes to him. You remember the family who didn't really care much about David? You remember the family when Samuel the prophet came to visit him and they didn't even invite David to the dinner? The family who thought him little esteemed? Now that same family, his brothers, his father, his mother, living in Bethlehem, they have their own land, they have their own life, but they hear about what's going on with David, they pick up and they go. So they can live in the desert, on the backside of the desert with their son. You see, the first thing we see is he's in the will of God. Not that life gets easier because the circumstances are still hard, right? When's the last time you guys lived in a cave? Yeah, no, no running water. Well, actually, there, there's running water. There's a stream outside, if that counts. So there's definitely some struggles that he's facing, some things that he's going through. But what else, the other thing that God does is he begins to restore he begins to restore David's family to him. Now I want you to continue. Look at, look at what happens in verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And he became the captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. Now on one hand we think, that's pretty cool. On the other hand, are those really the people you want? The discontent, the bum, the irritated, the frustrated, the ones who aren't happy with their circumstances. But you know, when I look at that, it's such a great picture of the very same people that Jesus came to minister to. When you read the gospel accounts, you know how many times the Bible says he was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but the Bible is given to us in a language that's less offensive than the Hebrew or the Greek. I don't know if you're aware of that. The concept for tax collector is traitor. And that word, the noun form of that word sinners, literally is prostitute and street walkers. People who lived in the street. He was a friend in general of the outcasts of society. 
Or a nice way of putting that, tax collectors and sinners. It sounds more generic, doesn't it? But in that place, it was the dregs of society, man. He hangs out with the bums. He hangs out with the people everyone else has rejected. Isn't that the same people God brings to David? David's going to build the army that sets Israel free out of those 400 guys. The three mighty men of David spoken of in in 2 Samuel are going to come from that group. In fact, during this time, during this time, David's going to be there at the cave of Adullam. That's where he is now. And he's going to mention that 400 dregs of guys around him, but they all love David. They all fall in love with him. Because why? He's a man after God's own heart. He reflects godly leadership to them. And so they love him. A warrior and a worshiper. He's got it all. The whole package is in David. And David mentions in passing, he's walking by. And he's got his three captains, the three baddest dudes in his army. I don't even remember all their names. Shama, Aldino, the, the, the Edomite, and there's another guy. They, they all had these huge victories where they killed multiple people because they were stranded and alone and they just were obedient to what God told them to do and God gave them the victory. Everybody else ran and they were left alone. And these three mightiest men of David are just hanging out, talking, and David kind of passes by and 15 miles away from the cave of Adullam is Bethlehem. That's where David was born, right? City of David. David's going to pass by him and say, man, there's this well in Bethlehem. The water out of that well is man, it's so good. I, I just I miss that water. In passing... The three mighty men get up, they fight their way 15 miles to Bethlehem. Now, it's all held by the Philistines at this particular time, that area in between. So they fight all the way to Bethlehem, they get to the well, they're they're secure in the well, they draw enough for a glass of water, like a canteen, a skin for David to have water from that well. And they fought their way all the way back to David just so they could give him that water. David took that water and he recognized the gift, the friendship, the love and care that went into that. And he loved that water more than anything else he had. So as the men were standing there and they hand him this gift... And he stands before him, weeping over the sacrifice that they've made. He took that water. He walked over to an altar. And he poured it out to the Lord. Not because he despised it. But because it was the most precious thing he had. And he gave that most precious thing he had to God. That's the example he was to his men. So you have 400 of the dregs of society come, but the example of David as a man after God's own heart changes them. And they become the very people, the very ones who are going to set Israel free. Well, the Bible goes on, says that David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, now please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he's got his mom and dad living with him, and he doesn't want his mom and dad to get killed. And it's a rough life living in a cave. So he takes him to Moab. Now there's a a logical reason why he takes him to Moab. 
Yeah, that's where his great grandma was from. Her name was Ruth. There's a whole book devoted to her. Remember Ruth and Naomi, Boaz? So he goes to Moab because he has kin in Moab. And he says, hey, can my parents stay here until I know what's going on? And so they take his parents. His parents are going to stay there in Moab. So he brought them before the king of Moab. And they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now David moves to this place called the stronghold. The, word, the, the Hebrew word for the stronghold is a Hebrew word, metzada. Metzada. Well, Herod later on built a big stronghold there. It's called Masada now. That's where David set up his stronghold. So he goes from the cave of Adullam. He wanders down to Moab, drops off his parents. He goes over to Masada. All of these places right around the Dead Sea area. Okay, we're not talking about thriving metropolis. He's down around the Dead Sea area. And a prophet came to him named Gad and said to David, Don't stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Haret. Uh, it means the thicket. So he goes into this thick forest. He, he leaves that and he goes into the forest more in mainland part of Judah rather than down by the Dead Sea. And when Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered... Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. One of the things we're seeing about Saul over and over again is that phrase. He had a spear in his hand. He's always ready to throw that spear at somebody. He's already, always ready to attack somebody. He's always ready to go after somebody. Listen, one of the first concerns I have in dealing with people and the, and the people that I've had to deal with is how many times they come into my office with a spear in their hand. They got a problem. You'll notice you come to my office, there's a sign over the door. The sign over the door says the deadline for all complaints was yesterday. That doesn't seem to stop these people. And they come in. Now, the first time they come with a spear, I just assume there's really a, an issue, Right? And the second time, I give them the benefit of the doubt. And the third time, I'm starting to think, maybe the problem's not what you think it is. And the fourth time, I can't hear what you're saying anymore. But there's been nothing but spear chucking going on in the office about this person did this, or that person did that, or this person's wrong, or you need to fix this thing, or you need to solve that problem, or you need to do this. And, and I start to think, Every time you come in here, you have a spear in your hand. That means you're following the kingship of Saul. David didn't ever have a spear in his hand. We don't read about David coming in, chucking spears at people, and having all these complaints. We read about David saying, let's wait and see what God's going to do. Being patient and loving and kind and graceful. So, here's Saul, being typical Saul, got a spear ready, right? You never know when you need to huck that at somebody. Because the Bible says, when in doubt, throw the spear first and figure it out later. <laughs> so, well, I don't know. Let's see what he does. So Saul said to his servants, listen to this, who stood around him. Here now, you Benjamites. Benjamites. Why would he call them Benjamites? Well, that's the tribe that David's from, right? In the city of, of, or the, the, uh, the city of Bethlehem, the Benjamites. And will the son of Jesse 
Give every one of you fields and vineyards and make all you captains of thousands and captains of hundreds. You hear how crazy he's talking? David, he's talking to his own people around him. And he's saying, well, I know David's promising to give you guys all this stuff. Man, David ain't done nothing but everything Saul asked him to do. All of you have conspired against me. And there is no one who reveals to me that my own son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Man, what a sniveling, whiny little baby. I'm already tired of reading what he has to say. He just... If he could say the word I or me anymore, where's his focus? It's all about self and how I feel and what's going on with me. Every once in a while, you know, when, when there's different counseling and things to, to go on... Uh, I will often start a counseling session the same way. When Jesus came to the pool of Bethsaida, there was a man laid, who laid there for 30 years. He'd been laying there because there was a, a, a story that an angel would touch the water, the pool of Bethesda, they touched Bethsaida, he touched the water, and the first guy in would get healed. And he'd been there all these many years waiting for his opportunity to be healed. You remember, you know what Jesus said to him? Do you want to be well? You ever met people who don't want to be well? I can't even tell you how many people who don't want to be well I meet. People who come in and they, what should I do? And you say, well, you know, here's what you need to do. And get your Bible and let's spend some time and let's, let's read and pray and talk. And let's really just pour the word of God into your life and allow worship of God to anoint your time and really draw near to the Lord. Then two weeks later, we'll get together again. So how's, how's that time with the Lord been going? How, how's the time been going reading the word and praying? And why well, I, I haven't done any of that. What are we supposed to talk about now? Uh, do you want to be well? Here's Saul. Same old story, right? Complaining, 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 complaining. All he ever had to do was repent, tell the Lord that God was right, ask for forgiveness, and the Lord would restore him. God said, if you obey me, Saul, I'll make you and your family king forever. But he wouldn't do it. Well, it says, after all this talk, in verse 9, Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. So, here's Doeg. You remember Doeg? He's the knucklehead we met earlier. Doeg, he hears Saul, and this is what he sees. An opportunity for advancement. And he takes it. Uh, see, that's not a man after God's own heart. That is self-promotion. Either you believe God will raise you up or you don't. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and what? He will lift you up. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. It's either the truth or a lie. It's either always true or it's never true. It doesn't sometimes work and other times not work. 
If we trust the Lord, we humble ourselves before him, and you're looking for that thing, that promotion or whatever you're looking for, and God doesn't lift you up into it, then you just say, God didn't want me to have it. Or you can be like Doeg, who's willing to slaughter an entire town, kill every man, woman, and child to get what he wants. Because that's what he is. As soon as the opportunity arises, oh, hey, uh, I know he was seeing Ahimelech. So it says in verse 10, and he inquired of the Lord for him. Hey, by the way, verse 10, Doeg tells a lie to get him a better promotion. Did, uh, did Ahimelech inquire to the high priest could only inquire to the Lord for the king? That's it. He could only use a Urim and a Thummim for the king. Period. Did we read in that where David said, Inquire the Lord whether or not I should go to Goliath's hometown? I don't think that's the way the Lord would have took him if he had. He didn't inquire the Lord, but that's what Doeg says. He inquired of the Lord. And he gave him provisions and he gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. You ever notice that when Satan tells a lie, when people scheme, when people try to work things out, they'll sprinkle a little bit of the truth in there. He gave David bread. He gave David a sword. But he didn't inquire of the Lord for him. What's going to be important in a minute, verse 11, the king sent to call Himelech. And they're too far away. The priest, the son of Ahitub, and listen to this, and all his father's house, and all the priests who were at Nob, so they all came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. He wouldn't even call him by his name. Ahimelech means friend of the king. He wouldn't call him Ahimelech. He called him Ahitub, his father's name, son of Ahitub. He answered, Here I am, Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? Does Ahimelech even know what's going on? No, because David lied to him. He don't even know. As far as he knows, he helped out David doing a special deal for the king. He says, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you gave him bread and a sword, and you inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day. So he actually accuses him of four things. Giving him bread, giving him a sword, inquiring of the Lord, and conspiring against the king. Those are the four charges. By the way, this is not a court. And this is not legal. But I guess if you're King Saul, none of those things matter, right? The, is it, what's, it, what's the rule? Him who has the gold makes the rules? That's the golden rule? I'm not sure that's the right golden rule. But I think we see that King Saul has the power, so he's going to do whatever he wants. Seems like Samuel told the people when they had a king this would happen. And here are the same people brought before Saul. Saul's accusing him, and Ahimelech answered the king. He says, who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Who's the king's son-in-law who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. So Ahimelech tells him the truth. Ahimelech says, man, David's your right-hand guy. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what's going on. I did not inquire of the Lord for him. I gave him bread and a sword, but I didn't have any idea that there was any problem. This is David. 
Why would I think there was an issue? This is the, 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 the defense that Ahimelech gives. And so the king says, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. So he's going to kill the priests. All the priests. All the priests who are in line to fulfill the role of high priest. He's going to kill them all. Sound like a guy after God's own heart? Sounds like a guy with a spear in his hand, though, don't it? Always ready to accuse, always ready to charge, always ready to to go into battle. Here he is, making a decision. So the king looks over at his guards who stood by him and said, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord. (laughs) It just seems like a wrong phrase, don't it? Turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And because they knew when he fled and didn't tell me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So at least there's one good thing in the story. The soldiers were smart enough to say, man, I am not killing a priest. I don't care what you say, king. Sounds like another opportunity for self-promotion, don't it? The servants of the king, you know, they won't obey the king. The king's mad and he wants somebody to kill the priests. But there's one guy there who's not an Israelite. He's an Edomite. He's a child of Esau. He'll raise his hand. I'll do it. Look what the scripture says. And the king said to Doag, you turn and kill the priest. So Doag the Edomite turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He killed all but one in the family of the high priest. And as tough as that is to swallow, God had said through Samuel the prophet to Eli that I'm going to pass the the ephod, if you will, the, the rule of high priest from the family of Eli to another. It won't be fulfilled until the time of Solomon. At the time of Solomon, Solomon's going to take the, the then high priest and remove him and give it to the family of Zadok. And the family of Zadok is going to hold the high priesthood the rest of the way through. Still a child of Aaron, but not through Eli. Well, as we look at the story, they slaughter all the priests, 85 priests. But that's not where it ends. Also, Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword. Both men, women, children, nursing infants... Oxen, donkeys, and sheep with the edge of the sword. He slaughtered everybody in town. Do you remember how Saul lost the right to be king? Because God said, I want you to go and have this battle with the Amorites, and I want you to slaughter them all. Kill them all. And Saul wouldn't do it. Oh, he killed all the people. But you remember he kept all the animals? And then he said, oh, I was going to give them to the Lord. But that's not what God asked. That's why Samuel said to him, don't you know to obey is better than sacrifice? And to heed than the fat of lambs? To listen to what God says is better than to come and offer him sacrifice later? But now the family of the high priests for the nation of Israel, he was willing to kill every man, woman, nursing infant, 
dog, cat, sheep, donkey, whatever they had. He slaughtered them all. He wouldn't obey God to go to battle against the enemies of God, but the people who were there to express to Saul, who were a picture to Saul of here's God, here's his Holy Spirit, here's the anointing of the king, here's a chance for you for repentance, here's the opportunity for sacrifice. He slaughtered them all. Listen, the rest of Saul's kingdom, there won't be a high priest. And there's going to come a time when Saul is so hungry to hear the word from God that he goes to the witch of Endor because there's not a priest in the land. Yeah, because you killed them all. That's a man after his own heart. Not a man after God's own heart. But listen, the scripture goes on. It says, now one of the sons of Ahimelech the son of a high tub named Abiathar escaped and fled to David. Abiathar now is a high priest. All the other guys are dead. Who's he with? David. He, there's also a prophet there named Gad. Remember Gad told him to leave Masada? Gad, so you have a prophet, Abiathar, a priest, and you have David, anointed king. Prophet, priest, king. I mean, it looks like the kingdom's shifting, right? Only they're not in, in a palace. They're in a cave. But they're still God's choice. They're still the ones who will free the nation. They're still the ones that will do the work. So Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, listen to this. I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, Listen, I have caused the death of all the people of your father's house. One of the things that marks that man after God's own heart is a willingness to take responsibility for his mistakes. Saul never did. Every time someone wrong, Saul said, it was them. They did it. I mean, isn't that what we're charged with when we raise our children? To teach our kids to stop blaming nobody? Who did it? Who broke the lamp? I don't know. Or nobody did it. Nobody, I'd like to catch nobody because nobody's done a lot of stuff around my house. The reality is we want to teach our kids to learn to take responsibility because that's what a man after God's own heart does. David don't make excuses. He looks at this child of the family that was all slaughtered because of the lie David told and he said, I'm responsible. Is there forgiveness when we confess our sins before the Lord? Can there be forgiveness without that? Man, we... If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We've got to confess. I mean, we, gotta, we, we have to be willing to repent. We have to be willing to agree, Lord, I have sinned. That's a man or woman after God's own heart. Hey, Joe, how are you? You having a good day? Uh, okay, you need cookies? Have some cookies, babe. Don't eat them all, though, because Noe wants some. <laughs> okay the scripture finishes up david said look at verse 23 as we wind up stay with me and do not fear for he who seeks my life seeks your life but with me you will be safe so david's going to take abiathar and abiathar will serve as david's high priest 
for the entire time that David rules as king. He won't be removed until the time of Solomon. Because Abiathar is going to back one of the guys who tries to disrupt Solomon's kingdom. And so Solomon will remove him and set up the high priesthood through Zadok. At that point, the prophecy that God gave to Eli will be totally completed. All the way through. Don't you see God's hand of preservation on David? There's lots of places he could have been lost. But all the while, God's hand's with him. When we come to them, the, the dark night of our soul like that, when we come to those places where we, where we struggle with what God's doing, maybe we'll remember one of the psalms David wrote from that time. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up, and fighting all day he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. You hear his despair. And whenever I am afraid, though, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can man do to me? All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. When they lie and wait for my life, shall they escape by iniquity and anger? Cast down the peoples, O God. But you number my wanderings. I love that phrase. What he's saying is, even while I'm out just wandering and I think I'm going no place, God's still guiding his steps. You number my wanderings. You know where I'm at. You know where I'm going. And you put my tears in your bottle. One of the things I wanted when I went to Israel was to make sure I got a a tear bottle. They used to save those. When they cried, they would store their tears in this fine-blown glass bottle. It was precious to them. bottle of their tears. I always said I was going to fill it up raising my kids, but I think I broke it before that ever happened. <laughs> a bowl in a china closet comes to mind, but I tried anyway. <clears throat> When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know, because God is for me. In God I will praise his word, and the Lord I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows I made to you are binding, O God. I will render praise to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling? That I might walk before God in the light of the living. A psalm written by David when he was captured in Gath. That's what he wrote during that time. Man after God's own heart always comes back to that right place. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for this opportunity, Lord, just to study your word. Father, I pray, God, that we would learn the lessons. Lord Jesus, just applying that simple concept, God, and not that we don't stumble or fall, but we keep you central. That we come back to you, that we reach out to you, that we take responsibility when we fail and when we make mistakes. And we receive forgiveness because we're willing to repent and acknowledge our sin before God. Or we can be stubborn and self-promoting like Doeg and Saul. And what we leave in our wake, what we leave in our wake is death. Death. 
destruction, misery. But David said, what we leave in his wake, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God, I just pray that we would learn to accept and apprehend that heart, Lord, a heart after you, that you would have that rightful place in our life. Lord, we just take this time before you, we lift it to you, we ask that you would do that perfect work by your spirit in our lives as we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close out tonight with a word of worship. I invite you guys to worship with us. And as you heard, apparently there are cookies. So I'll meet you guys around the cookies. God bless you. Go in peace. John saved me a cookie. <laughs> I'm watching you. There's a million truths to every lie. Speak it out loud, lift it up high. There's a million reasons Cover your eyes But let the light shine Through the darkness we hide So let the light shine Through the darkness we hide Come let us Come let us Come let it Come let it shine, come let it, come let it, come let it, come let it shine. There's a weary way to wash yourself clean. Let the dirt fall, fall on your knees. There's a million scars for every mistake. Oh, we are not chained to the secrets we made. But we are not chained to the secrets we made. Come let it, come let it, come let it, come let it shine. Come let it, come let it. Time of a time now Can't afford not to cry Not to cry out Shake the earth from the ground From the ground now Risky souls from the darkness Around Here's a battle of a time Of a time now 
can't afford not to cry, not to cry out. Yeah. the earth from the ground, from the ground now. Risky souls from the darkness around. thank you for this time, Lord, this evening, Lord, in your word, Lord, a time of worship, Lord, another day, Lord, uh, closer to you, Lord, we just thank you, Lord, be with us as we fellowship, Lord, uh, be with us, Lord, may your spirit fill us, Lord, may we walk in your ways, Lord God, be with us as we fellowship in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 